Welcome to CTL Connections Short Bites, a series of interviews with senior engineering leaders. I'm your host, Peter Bell. The future's here. It's just not evenly distributed. At CTL Connection, we try to solve that by identifying, curating, and distributing the latest tools and techniques for more effectively building and managing an engineering team. Join our community at ctlconnection.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank our partners. Code Climate is our global sponsor. Code Climate Velocity helps CTOs, VPEs, and directors at companies like Slack, Gusto, and Pizza Hut align initiatives with strategic priorities, accelerate software delivery, and drive continuous improvement. I'd also like to thank Amazon Web Services and Carrot, our sustaining partners. I'd also like to take a moment to introduce our Short Bytes partner, Cloud Zero. You're spending a ton of money on the cloud, so shouldn't you know exactly what you're spending it on? Cloud Zero will help you organize and understand your cloud spend better than anyone else out there. You'll get visibility without the typical pitfalls of legacy cloud cost management tools like endless tagging or clunky Kubernetes support. With Cloud Zero, you can optimize your unit economics, decentralize cost intelligence to engineering, and create a shared language between finance and technical teams. You'll be able to answer questions like, who are my most expensive customers? How much does this specific feature cost our business? What is the cost impact of re-architecting this application? Join companies like Drift, Rapid7, and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com slash ctlconnection to get started. Again, please visit cloudzero.com slash ctlconnection to get started today. Today, I'm speaking with Dave Mango, principal at Mango Tech. Dave, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom today. Oh, my pleasure. I'm really happy to be here. So I love that you gave me this, you know, somewhat controversial title, Architecture Matters, Technology Doesn't. What do you mean by that? Uh, thanks for asking that, because uh, I came up <laughs> with the title. Um, and what I mean by that really is that, you know, what we like to say sort of in the DevOps movement is like, you could have a really, you know, great tooling, great technology and all that other stuff. If you put that into a bad architecture, it, you're not going to be successful. Really, and and ultimately, the thing that's going to determine the success of, of your prod, your engineering project, your company, even you know, sometimes this is like a very systems thinking you know idea, which is you know the first way of DevOps is systems thinking. It's like you you have to have the architecture in place that support you know the things that you want to get done, the the things that you want to achieve. What technology you use underneath that, like. Is it important? Sure, it's important, but it's not going to be the determining factor. Uh, and if you try to, you know, force a great technology through a lousy system, you're just not going to get the results that you want, unfortunately. Well, and I think it's hard, right? Because most of us start as technologists, even if we move into technology leadership. And so it's always fascinating to do. I want to do this functional bake-off between Angular and React, you know, like back in the day when there was still like a choice. Um, or I, I want to like, you know, pick this particular CI system. Well, maybe we should be using Golang or, you know what, Haskell. It's monads all the way up. Uh, and, and it turns out that while there are real benefits to choosing uh, a powerful framework with a good community, that's not really what's going to move the needle in terms of success for most companies. Yeah. And we see this all the time, right? Your, your CTO, or if you're the CTO, you know, somebody comes to you and is like, we have to do this in Erlang. It's going to be awesome. And then you go, where am I going to find Erlang programmers? And they're like, oh, yeah. And, you know, it's a systems thinking kind of uh, way of approach. Like, 
we need to hire programmers who can actually execute on this. And like, if you want to corner the market on all the Erlang programmers out there, that's a, that's a choice. And that's a business decision that we have to make. But, you know, other than that, like, Hey, let's do this in something that we can actually hire people to, to get it done and be successful. I think it also, I mean, uh, that I hate now, now I'm actually going into technology, but especially with things like dynamically typed languages, which are optimized for individual developer productivity, but maybe are not optimized for like, you know, 3000 developers working on the same code base. There is actually a real strategy to say, the good news is there are very few bad Haskell developers, right? Like, or like back in the day, bad closure developers, because if you actually have the interest and commitment to learn that kind of functional language, there is actually a real niche in saying, you know, all we ever need to hire is 50 people and we're going to hire the 50 best we can find in this space. And that's a business decision, right? That that we're going to decide that we're going to do that. And I, for me, I, I love it because that's one of the, it's one of the things I most enjoyed about the DevOps movement, like right from the very beginning is we're tying the outcomes that we're getting from the engineering work that we do to business outcomes. Right. There's we're not just here to 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 do cool technology like I love cool technology. You know, I, I've been doing this for a long time. And, you know, I remember working on bigger and bigger sun hardware and all that other stuff. And it, and it was great. I loved it. Bigger, bigger, bigger. But like, that's not why we go to work. And I, I always tell the story about um, there's this network engineer in San Francisco in 2008. Uh, and they, uh, they told him, you know, give the, uh, Cisco enable password for people who have ever done any network engineering, uh, to these consultants who are going to do something with the network. And the network engineer said, no, (laughs) they're like, what? No. And he's like, I built the most perfect network that there has ever been ever. It's wonderful. It's fully tuned to everything. No one else is going to mess this up. And I was like, okay. And so they wound up throwing the guy in jail, which is nuts. Like, uh, just completely insane. Uh, and they threw him in jail. And Gavin Newsom was the mayor of San Francisco at the time. Now he's the governor of California. Had to go negotiate with this guy in jail to get the password out. And, you know, ultimately that it all worked itself out. And you can go look it up, but whatever. Uh, but the thing is, I you know, I, I, to me, that's the most DevOps story ever because the guy didn't realize, like, his job was to enable the people of San Francisco to have a great network, you know, and, and, and achieve all the things that we want to achieve. His job wasn't to go and create the most perfect net, like technical creation that there is, and then closely guard his technical creation. Like, that's not why we're here at work. And so uh, I love that in the DevOps movement, so much of, you know, us talking about delivering quickly and delivering with quality and all the other things, that's what's important because those enable us to outcompete our competitors in the marketplace and build trust with our customers and all this other kinds of business outcomes, not just like, oh, wow, look at this super intricate algorithm that I wrote that in three months, no one else is going to understand. Like, that's not why we're at work. Well, I also, I always love the quote that you you, you should you should write the code, remember on on your best days, remembering that you're going to have to debug it on your worst days. It's like, I have absolutely written code that I was completely unable to debug. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even just the other rest of the development team. So, yeah, so and you, writing code well is a craft, right? And you have to learn that craft. 
But, you know, we all know, those of us who have done this for a long time, like, writing code isn't really the hard part. It seems like the hard part when you're starting off your career, but, like, the hard part is, you know, Camille Fournier has a great blog post on this. Uh, all the things that are involved in, in being a senior engineer that are not coding, I think is what the name <laughs> of the blog post is. And it's all like, how do we get the team to understand what we're doing? And how do we get buy-in from management to allow us to work on technical debt? And, you know, there's all kinds of things that are far beyond coding, which turn out they're, they're just way harder than the <laughs> coding part. <laughs> Absolutely. So a little earlier, you were talking about metrics. And obviously, the thing comes to mind, DevOps and metrics is that there are four in particular that people talk about a lot, right? Deployment frequency, lead time for changes, mean time to recover, change failure rate. Like, it, How do you interact with those Dora metrics? How do you think about those when you're going in and, and helping a company to improve its engineering practices? Yeah, I think about them a lot. <laughs> I... Uh... <laughs> I developed a, a service delivery assessment, uh, which we go and do with companies uh, to help them get better. Uh, and it's based entirely on the Dora metrics. Um, I think the interesting thing is that when we designed it, um, we don't actually ever measure the Dora metrics. We never tell you that your deployment frequency is six or your you know, time to recover is eight or any, there's no numbers involved. Um, I think the thing that's important is that the Dora metrics are indicative of a good engineering culture, right? And if you look at them, you know, you name them, uh, you know, deployment frequency and lead time for changes is about speed, right? Mm -hmm. How how quickly can I, uh, you know, can I deploy something or whatever? Uh, and then if you look at the other two, which is change failure rate and time to recover, those are about quality, Right. Mm -hmm. How, you know, when I deploy things, do I have breakage when there's a, a uh, when something breaks, how can I recover? Um, and so for me, I this is something I talk about a lot. I, you know, I think DevOps is really about delivering with speed and quality. And, you know, obviously delivering in, includes running the software after it's deployed and being able to recover from failure and stuff like that. But, you know, for me, those are quality things. And so, um what I try to get people to focus on is like what we're going for here is speed and quality. And like those, those, those numbers are important and they're, they're interesting. Um, but at the same time, like if I deploy a hundred times a day, or if I deploy 200 times a day is 200 twice as good as a hundred, like right. it probably means nothing. You know, it has a lot more to do with like, are we meeting our business objectives? Like if we deploy five times a day and we're meeting all of our business objectives, am I going to yell at my team? Come on, let's get a hundred deploys a day. What's the point? This is just, it's just dumb. It's just a waste of time. And so, um, you know, we focus on the capabilities that people should have uh, to um, be able to deploy with speed and quality. And so, like, you know, for example, like, this is like, can be silly. Everyone's going to laugh when they hear it. Like, you know, we kind of look back over the last year of doing assessments. The things that the best teams did well was they, you know, kept their uh, software in revision control. And everyone's going to be like, ha, 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 revision, you know. But, like, if you think about it, like, that enables so much stuff in order to deploy with speed and quality, you know, like you can generate artifacts automatically when you check in code that way, you have higher quality because people are doing code reviews. You can roll things back because you actually have a record of what, you know, and 
it's just there's and you know that's obviously kind of a, a simple one and that's like kind of the top thing that the best companies did well but like if you know <laughs> i've been doing this long enough i'm sure you have too if it's like hey let's go get something off of louise's laptop and ship it out to production you know yeah, and people like do movie. that and people have done that and like that's not a high performing engineering organization uh, and then obviously, you know, we get into things like feature flags and, and dark launching and all kinds of other fun stuff like that. So so maybe let's yeah, I want to step back and unpack some of this. So one thing is, yeah, I, I do still remember back in the day and it was a while now where it was like, hey, I'll just, you know, make a zipped copy of the directory every night. And that way, at least we can roll back to yesterday. I, I got to ask, like, in the last decade, have you actually seen any teams that aren't using probably Git and, you know, GitHub, GitLab, or something similar? You mean like SVN? <laughs> well, I mean, no, I mean, like, have you, I mean, like, have you come across teams not using version control? Like, I, I thought that died out 15 years ago, but I, I yeah, don't know. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, almost everybody uses version control. I think that, um, I think it gets a little bit more complicated, or I, I kind of wanted to use the word insidious, but it's probably not the right word. Uh, you know, you, you get to these, um, you know, one of the great things about revision control is, you know, we, we've got this place in it and it uh, and stuff goes in there and then we can sort of build all of our automation for deployment off of that. The problem is, is that that's where things get tricky is when you're it's uh, people put in these gates. Oh, well, we're going to give it to QA on the other side of the world. They're going to review it and then they're going to bless it or not bless it. And then it's going to come back to us and whatever. And you know, all those things, are, it's not revision control as much, but it's its these things that are getting in the way of taking advantage of what revision control can do. And so um, that's the kind of stuff we see. You know, you have to go in front of the change advisory board if you want to release the software to production, which, you know, if you ever see Nicole, Dr. Nicole Fosgren's, uh, you know, DevOps Enterprise Summit speech where she says change advisory boards are worthless and like the entire room goes... <gasps> You know, <laughs> like, it's, it's pretty, and you know, she's right, of course, like kind of always with Nicole. Uh, but, you know, you, 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 you see things like that. You see people putting these sort of gates up. Uh, one of the things we see a couple of times, and they talk about this in the team topology book, uh, topologies book, is um, yeah. people will deploy into an environment and then they will uh, keep deploying into that staging environment. And then they batch all that stuff up and they release it as a release. And you're like, you're so close, <laughs> but you're, but you're creating these artificial big batch releases. And that's not what we advocate in the, in the DevOps movement. And so um, we see kind of knock on effects that aren't really so much like revision control, but um, sort of, you know, things that are sort of in that realm and then people get themselves into trouble. So, I mean, that's actually a really interesting question. So just to dig into it. So obviously we know the value of like testing pyramids and like unit testing and in a perfect world, test driving your code. So it's better architected, simplest possible things that solves the interface required. So that all makes yep. sense. That said, there are still things that it can be hard to nail the automated testing on, right? You know, specific UX things, stuff like that. So what what should a team do if you want to deploy to production 20 times a day, but you have some elements that humans need to review. How, how do you kind of square that circle of being able to hit the lead time for change to deployment frequency while still not having too high a change failure rate? 
Well, I guess I would push back on the idea that humans need to do, right? You know, one of the great lessons that uh, Jez Humble and Dave Farley talk about in the Continuous Delivery book is like, you know, how much testing you do is really about your confidence in in what you're releasing. And the more testing you do, the more confidence you you should have, right? Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you're doing more testing and not getting more confidence, then you should start questioning what that testing is because it's not delivering value to you. And, you know, there's all lean principles about all that. So, um, you know, I, I remember going up and with a EVP at Salesforce, you know, when I, I was an architect in infrastructure engineering there, designed a lot of the way the Salesforce operates and, and things that they're doing even now with hyper cloud or whatever that crazy thing is. Uh, and this EVP was like, hey, you want money for what? I was like, oh, we want testing for, you know, infrastructure, this thing. And he's like, well, how much money do you want? And I was like, how confident do you want to be in, in your releases? <laughs> and it was, you know, it was like kind of a, I was trying to put it, turn it around as like a business problem. You know, yeah. it's, this isn't a technical thing. It's like, if we want to have high confidence in our releases, we're going to have to spend more money on, you know, release infrastructure and parallelization and all, you know, and. And Salesforce had hundreds of thousands of tests on the Salesforce application at the time. I don't even know what the number is now. It could be, you know, in the millions, who knows, but, you know, it's about confidence. And so, you know, if you are in that situation where you want to, you know, deliver, you know, more often or whatever, you have to, it's a, it's almost becomes a business decision at that point. How confident do we want to be? Like, do we think that we can, uh, you know, release this stuff without the humans testing it yes or no and like if we don't think that we can do it without the humans testing it then what can we do what can we change what can we refactor about the code to make it more testable and you know this is something i see a lot when i work with these companies that are older they're not startups or whatever they're like this code was never written to be testable like, it's just not, you know, and, and so they wind up relying on integration tests and things like that as sort of a way of, um, you know, compensating for that. And, you know, maybe that's an acceptable trade off. Maybe we need to refactor certain elements of it. You know, it's you can't there's no general rule like it's, you know, it's it's for each situation. But, you know, for that company that you're talking about, I would say. You know, what can we do to make it more testable so that we are more confident if you feel like this stuff is that important? You know, because 100 percent test coverage is kind of dumb, right? There's not, there's no point in that. Like, but, um, you know, what we want to make sure that we're covering our bases. Makes sense. So I, another thing that often comes up is this whole idea, because I think there's historically it was like, hey, you know, we'll release to staging. Some people will engage with it there. And now, of course, especially with feature flagging, there's this whole like testing in production because whether you like it or not, you are going to be testing in production because for a non-trivial infrastructure, you can't perfectly replicate every element of it in staging. How do you how do you think about that now when you're advising teams? Are you just like, let's just drop staging and not even deal with all the sanitization of PII and cleanup and having multiple environments and let's just test it in production under a feature flag, we can we can roll it back very easily? Or do you still find that there are certain classes of problems, you know, even like performance testing, where it's really nice to have a non-production box you can beat up on? Uh there's a lot to unpack in that one. <laughs> uh, 
uh, especially when you just got into PII and, and I was like, Ooh, that's, uh, <laughs> um, I, I still believe in testing in, you know, your traditional dev stage production. Uh, I also fully believe that you should have the ability to test in production. There's no question about that. Um, it's just, uh, it's funny. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday because, uh, I followed Gene Kim on Twitter and he was retweeting charity majors this week. Mm -hmm. uh, and I haven't gone and, and looked at the link yet, um, but they were talking about a Facebook study that showed that, um, you know, how valuable it is to get feedback quickly on the code that you write. Mm -hmm. and, and the problem is, you know, ultimately is it's just way faster and cheaper to do testing in pre-production environments. Uh, than to do things in production where things can go catastrophically wrong. Uh, and, you know, I dark launching, feature flagging, these are all things I preach heavily. So it's not that I'm like, what? I don't, how could you, you know, I get it. Like, I understand exactly what that is. But like, ultimately, you know, one of the reasons that unit tests are great uh, and, you know, this is not, you know, we're not just shipping stuff directly to production is like, if I write some code, and uh, I run my unit test on it, even on my desktop. And like three minutes later, I, oh, you broke this thing. Oh, great. No problem. I go in, I, you know, I, I fix the thing and then I ship it again. And it's very fast. It's very low cost. So in DevOps, like the second way of DevOps is shortening and amplifying feedback loops, right? This is shortening and amplifying feedback loops. Like I, I get the result, the things really quickly. If I've, you know gone and, and written something and then like even if it's a week later and like oh now it's in production and we we found this problem or whatever i have to go back and be like what was i doing when i wrote that code you know because i've written four thousand lines of code since then or whatever like wh why did I? and now you have to get back into the code and it's just it's a lot more expensive and it takes a lot longer you know the longer you drag out these things and um you know that's not to say I haven't worked with, you know, I work regularly with teams that like can ship, you know, 10 minutes after they write the code and that's fine. But like you can also run unit tests and integration tests and things in 10 to 15 minutes, right? That's also like we talked about the Humble and Farley book, Continuous Delivery. There's, they say, what's the, you know, how long should your test run? Uh, you know, a, a, about as much time as it takes to go get a cup of coffee. <laughs> like that's, that's how long, and if it goes much longer than that, that there's, there's a problem. And, you know, I guess if there's less than that, then maybe you're not doing as much testing as you could, but you know, it doesn't, we're not talking about like these incredible burdens of, of doing this testing, but like, it's just way faster and cheaper to, to shorten and amplify those feedback loops. Absolutely. I'm going to go back to version control for a little bit because I, I still remember back when everyone was enamored with the Git flow model, right? And you had this long, basically you had these long lived branches for releases and for other things that were specifically designed to reduce the number of times you pushed to production for some reason, right? It was like to reduce that uh, time. And then it became more popular to go with what one of the names for it was the GitHub model or the GitHub flow model, right? Where you have short-lived feature branches merging back into, into main as quickly as possible. And now, yeah. of course, all the cool kids are talking about trunk-based or main-based development. Uh, the only pushback I have when I see trunk-based development is I'm worried that teams that have almost no maturity, like what's unit testing, jumping straight to that, and all they're doing is breaking the build 20 times a day. 
how do you think about the the level of maturity required to move to from say short-lived feature branches into developing directly on trunk i mean i don't really have strong opinions on that i I think ultimately that just kind of comes down to what we talked about in the beginning is architecture matters technology doesn't and like if you have the architecture to support you know, short-lived feature branches, meaning we have the unit tests, we have the ability to do feature flags, we have, you know, automated uh, artifact creation upon, uh, you know, checking things in. And we are not creating brand new containers for every single environment because that's not how you use containers. You know, if you have the right architecture in place, I think that's great. I think if you just try to go full speed down one axis, and forget about all the rest of it, you're going to have a bad time. And, and, I, and I think teams actually feel that. Like they, you know, they see that and they feel it because they're like, something's not right here. Like every time we commit, we're, you know, we push something to production, we have trouble or, or why am I out there like chasing down Peter, trying to get him to put something into, you know, code, you know, revision control. Like something's not right. Something's not working right. And I, I think it's really like we have to be intentional. It's funny because we're engineers, right? So we actually have to engineer the systems that are doing all this stuff. And and we all know that engineering something isn't about a single axis. It's about looking at the entire system as a whole and trying to optimize the whole, right? Which is gets again, first way of DevOps. You know, we wanna know local optimizations. We wanna have global optimizations and keep the work flowing through. And so um, I think that's when people get into trouble. I I think the problem is, is that, you know, people have a tendency to say like, oh, well, Jez Humble says that trunk-based development is the best. So let's go to go do that. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Like, that's the only criteria is Jez says it. And Jez is great. I love Jez. He's oh, yeah. an awesome guy. Spent time with him. He's, <laughs> he's But like, Jez would never tell you, hey, you should just go do whatever. And so... You know, I work with teams all the time where they're, you know, to your point, it's not even that they're not ready for trunk based development is like, that's not what's causing the problems here. You know, you're like, every time, you know, we release like, uh, you know, the the database uh, goes crazy. It's like, well, let's focus on that. Like trunk based, it's not, that's not like the thing here, you know, and like, what can we do about that problem? And and it's just, it's a very um, architecture way. And I, yeah, I was an architect, so maybe I like that word, but, um, but yeah, it, it's a, it's kind of a different approach. And I, that's the technology doesn't like, you know, trunk based development. Great. It's good when you can do it. I, I think it'd be perhaps helpful. I know we're, we're way into the episode already, but like, how do you define and differentiate architecture from technology in that statement that architecture matters and technology doesn't i mean it's it of course it's systems thinking but like you know the example i like to give is uh i when i'm talking to people i'm like you need to do you know continuous integration i don't care whether you use circle ci travis ci build kite what none of that stuff matters you know it, it doesn't matter to me in terms of, but if you're doing CI, or you're not doing CI, that's what, that's what's important. And then, you know, I get a lot of questions from clients like, well, which tool should I use? And I'm like, I don't know, but 
the way that I approach this is what tool fits best with your existing culture? And they're like, what? And it's because that's the tool that's going to get the most adoption, right? If you like tell somebody, hey, you're used to thinking about the world like X, and now you have to think about the world like Y, that's a, that's hard. That's a lot of work, you know. We and everyone, every consultant, and every transformation thing always uses like evolution, not revolution. Da, 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 you know, and th- but that's really what it is, right? It's it's we want people to keep getting better all the time. Like it's it's uh, it's the idea of kaizen, and and we, we DevOps movement loves to talk about that kind of stuff. But like the point isn't to be a great engineering team, like. That it's a journey and you're always on the journey and you'll never arrive. The point is to keep getting better all the time. Every, you know, we used, my agile coaches used to say like, you know, from one January to the next, you should be a much better team at that second January because you're working on the team like all the time. And so even in our, you know, our service delivery assessment that we perform, what we're trying to do is help people take the next step to keep getting better. Because if you just keep getting better all the time, you, it, you know, every, there's all those graphs, uh, the thing, and then it's additive and it turns a, a couple of drops turn into a tidal wave over time and blah, blah, you know, all these great metaphors that everybody has. But like, that's what we're trying to get people to do. And so if you pick a CI CD tool that fits with your culture, then people are going to adopt it and people are going to add on to it and make it better and have a better improvement, uh, you know, in a user experience over time. And those things are, are, you know, it's hard to compete against a team that knows how to do that. Andrew Schaefer calls it a learning organization, but like, you know, everyone uses the, all us DevOps folks love to talk about Toyota, 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 Toyota. Well, why does Toyota let people write books about how they make cars? Because Toyota is always getting better. And by the time that book is published, that's ancient history to them because they're always striving to get better. And that's, you know, that's the that's the most dangerous thing that you can do as an engineering team is keep getting better all the time because your competition, if they're not able to keep pace with you, it's over. You're going to destroy them and you're not going to destroy them as an engineering organization you're going to destroy them as a company. Like you're going to outcompete those people in the marketplace. And this isn't theoretical. This isn't Dave saying like crazy stuff. Like this is what came out of the Accelerate book and the 2019 State of DevOps report, right? Highest performers are twice as likely to meet or exceed their organization's performance goals. And, you know, look at the Accelerate book if you want to look at all the math behind that or whatever. But like you can outcompete your competitors and that's market share, that's customer satisfaction. That's revenue. Those all those customer, all those company goals. And so, um, turns out, just getting better all the time's big deal. Dave, uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time. But thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom today. Oh, it was my pleasure. I love talking about this stuff.